0: Hello, Jasmine. How are you? Welcome to the Cholos Ramirez show. You're our first, gir- our first guest in our show, so we are very proud to, to begin this, this project. That is basically about um, Cholos Quintles, the Mexican hairless dog. And Jasmine, she is an important person in our feed on Twitter because uh, all everything that we have seen of her. It's about the Cholo. She's very into the, the topic. She, she goes frequently to, to museums to study about these uh, hairless dogs that are, that are uh, in, from Mexico, inherited from our culture in Mexico. I don't know if she can introduce herself a, a little bit for everybody here to know more about her including us, please, Jasmine, can you introduce yourself a little bit?
1: Yeah, sorry for, for being late, first of all, but thank you so much for having me here. I'm, I'm happy to talk about um, hairless dogs and solos and uh, any, anything really about dogs. So a little bit about me is I completed my master's thesis uh, last spring on hairless dog ceramics um, in West Mexico and Peru. I've always been into um, dogs. I don't I don't have a hairless dog. I, I'm stuck with chihuahuas, unfortunately. Um, but I've always been into them. So when I went to do my master's thesis, I decided I really wanted to focus in on these dogs. Uh, so that's kind of my, my background area. But I'm also kind of um, trained in, in general Mesoamerican art, archaeology. So I, I'm a little bit into everything. And I'm super happy to be here today.
0: Thank you very much, Jasmine. So uh, why did you became interested in the Hairless Dog? Because you, you, as you know, the Colima Dog, that is uh, like the name of your of your username here on Twitter, Choleskwinklers uh, come from Colima. I, I, am I right? Or, or they come from somewhere else? What, what do you know about the, the Hairless Dog? Do they come from which part of Mexico specifically?
1: Well, that's something that's a really like good question in terms of which dogs, first of all, did we have in ancient times? And so the Florentine Codex, which is kind of like the go-to for researchers of um, animals and life in general before um, the Spanish arrived, it was actually written by the Spanish with help from indigenous peoples. But there's a book about um, all the animal species there were, and they... I think there's four dog species and one of them is the Sholo, the hairless dog. Um, And so that's kind of, I'm going to work my way backwards. We're going to start there. That's kind of our first written um, mention of the hairless dog, but depictions of the hairless dog, you're correct. Probably the very first ones we see are from Kolima. Now, some um, other specialists would say that the Kolima dogs, there's probably two different breeds being depicted. There's, the Tlauchichi, which is probably the descendant of the Chihuahua. That's the short-haired, um, kind of fat, stubby dogs. But there are also Kolima dog ceramics that have these incised lines on them, which we, which I personally believe are wrinkles, which would suggest a hairless dog. Um, and there are also uh, Kalima ceramics where they have longer legs and longer bodies that are more like the modern um, hairless dog. So kind of to answer that question, it's a long way of saying that Colima is probably West Mexico is probably where we first see these hairless dogs in Mexico, but hairless dogs have a long history actually throughout the Americas. We eventually get them in Peru, but that's a whole other story we can get into later.
0: (laughs) Okay. Because a lot of people uh, ask us a lot, uh, which is the relationship with, between the Peruvian hairless dog and the Mexican hairless dog and uh, both have in common that they were uh, recorded for the history of the archaeologists, right? So uh, both have uh, this same characteristic that they were like ancient dogs, but the Mexican heralded dog has something that the Peruvian hasn't, like uh, they have this history, this mystic, this uh, like uh, legend behind uh, the breed, right? Can you talk a little bit about uh, this relationship that the Aztecs have with the Mexican heralded dog, the Cholo Squintley, and their spiritual awareness that they they have?
1: Yes, absolutely. So dogs throughout Mesoamerica are connected to death. And that sounds really morbid at first, but when we actually look into it, it's something very uh, touching to me. So Throughout the cultures that we'll see this with the Aztec, with the Maya, and, and as early as with West Mexico, we see dogs being associated um, with kind of death. And, and the idea essentially is that they would guide their owners in the afterlife. So the Colima ceramics, um, you know, it's kind of hard to talk about the ceramics first of all in Colima because I want to just make sure we know that most of these ceramics came from looted tombs. So it's hard to know originally where they were and what their purpose was. So when we talk about the Colima ceramics, we're kind of putting together as best as we can. Um, and actually a lot of what we get from the Colima ceramics, we have to kind of work again our way backwards from what the Aztecs and the Maya show us. So the Aztecs, for example, going back to that Florentine codex I talked about earlier, there is an entire kind of section. I don't remember what book it is, but they talk about how these dogs were very important because they had to be buried with their master. Um, in order to help guide them in the afterlife, there were several levels that they had to go through. And there's one level, there's one point where a dog would have to help them go across the river. Um, and that's kind of some, why we believe that the dogs were buried with the owners and we kind of uh, project that onto the Kalima dogs. And that's why they were probably buried with their owners. It was something, it was a bond that was, you know, started in life and continued through death. And in the Maya, um, I'm just you know, off the top of my head here. I know that we have a lot of ceramic, um, not actual depictions of dogs, but dro- like fine line ceramic drawings of dogs in the afterlife. So in terms of, you know, the human and everyday domestic dog, these dogs were something to help them in the afterlife. But there was also for the Aztecs, there was a, a deity named Xolot, um, and he was the twin brother of Quetzalcoatl, who was... Uh, the Feathered Serpent Deity. And there is one version of, of the creation uh, story where Sholot does exactly what other dogs do in that he helps guide Quetzalcoatl in the underworld to go get these bones. So dogs, they, they have a very prominent kind of connection with um, humans and with death. And uh, like I said, it was a bond that started in life and continued in death.
0: Okay, so... And they were very related to the spiritual world. So we have a lot of traditions here in Mexico, like the Dia de Muertos, that is where people join together with their dead people, their dead parents, or, or related people, right? Here in the physical world. And they offer them what they like and all this. And the quincle as you said, they were buried with their dead people. So uh, do you think uh, this these relationship that the people have with their dogs uh, come from, uh, from, I don't know, from something that they think it was real? Or do, do you think that it is uh, very like, I don't know, mm, because, for example, Frida Kahlo also, sleep with with her dogs, right? And she said that uh, these dogs were like um, healing for for her, like they they heal when they sleep with her. And uh, she started drawing these dogs, and put uh, a name to one of her dogs that, that it was uh, Mister Cholotl, for example. So I think that the people that have um, like have had these these Cholo dogs, like they uh, understand that there is something mystical about them, right? Maybe it is not something uh, truly like only mythology, but it has something true behind. Um, do you think that uh, maybe there are some people that they um, have proof that these dogs have some connection with the underworld, or do you think it, it, it is truly a, like a myth?
1: Well, I'm not sure like, if we could just say it's a myth because I think it's important like if we take a step back A lot of dogs um are connected with the underworld so like the egyptians um anubis uh, was a jackal which was a dog so i think this kind of speaks to a um kind of like i don't want to say like primordial because that kind of is a big claim but this just kind of eternal connection between man and dog um in Peru, you know where there's also the, another hairless dog, they also were associated probably with death. We think those ceramics also came um, from tombs. And in terms of the healing, yeah, that's an excellent point. Some, one of the pieces of research I found while doing my thesis is that um, these hairless dogs are very popular today in Peru because the same, the same ideas that they're thought to be healing. And the kind of um, scientific answer to this may be because they're hairless. Um, and they're thought to be kind of like warmer dogs. So they like to cuddle. Um, and I, I, you guys probably know more about this. You've had, um, you have hairless dogs. But um, there's this idea that they were probably, you know, used to heal in that way because their skin circulates the heat um, better. And I believe there actually may be a colonial account where we have some dogs were used as like that exact purpose to kind of he- keep the body warm. And if we're thinking like in the context of, um, you know, Peru or uh, coastal Peru, where it's very cold in the evenings, yeah, these dogs would be very important to help keep you warm. Um, and the same thing I would think kind of in um, Mesoamerica and Mexico, um, you know, so to kind of answer that question, I think, you know, s- some people that want proof for every le- scientific proof for every le- little thing, you can never really convince them of. Um, super ma- natural uh, like elements right but I think anybody who's had a relationship with a dog whether it's a hairless dog or any dog knows that there's a very close bond and something I think it's important with hairless dogs in particular that I kind of talk about uh, that I wrote about in my thesis is that hairless dogs kind of require a little bit more care they're not your everyday um, dog because they have no fur and if we're thinking back in like ancient times where, you know, we don't have things like sunscreen and we don't have doctors to go to, you know, vets, or we can't go Google, you know, what's wrong with my hairless dog. You had to put a lot of time and effort into caring for these dogs. So, like I said, there was probably four or five different dog breeds at the time, but the hairless dog probably was a very special one because of its appearance and because of the amount of care you needed uh, to take care of it. Um, so I don't I don't want to keep going on that because I could, again I can talk about that for a while but yeah to answer your question I think these dogs were kind of seen as special and maybe had these mythological purposes because of how unique they were and kind of how they could help humans because they were a little bit warmer.
0: Well, here here in Cholo Ramírez we started breeding Cholo Squinkles like four years ago, and before that we personally I have some experience with. Shamanism and Temascales and all this kind of stuff that is uh, Mexican primitive, right? Like the primitive culture of the Aztecs, and they are all related to the nature and to this, uh, like a uh, bond with with the with the abuelas, like uh, the rocks, all this. They connect you with your ancestors, and I think that the Cholescuincle is a little bit related with that because you connect with your ancestors in the afterlife. A, the same way, right? And I started being interested in, in Mexican culture very much, and that's why we start this project, because I, I love dogs and I love the Mexican culture, but I have like lived, right? I have not studied the Mexican culture, I have lived it here in Mexico since I was born and all this, and, and my experience with these dogs is that they are very, very um, like protective for their people that is something very true, like, when, when you have a cholos they they adopt you as well. So uh, people think that you are like the master of your dog and all this, but I, I think that they, they like, kind of select the people that they want to be with. Because uh, when they don't like the, the, the vibe, as uh, some people said, right? Like you don't, you don't like the vibe of other people. They like they feel it. They they don't only use their their smell sense. I think that they feel the the energy around them as well. So that may be related with the the aspects of of connecting with something unknown, right? Because they can see s- things that other people um, are not aware. They can see that. So. When people come here uh, to select a dog, like, if they don't like the people, they simply, they bark to them or they go away. <laughs> like, that's why I am saying that they feel these energies. That's something I have seen. Other th- other, other thing is that they are very, like, um, they have, like, their hierarchies. They are very hierarchic dogs. then ben ben. Right now, I am with them here in the, in the, in the kennel right i am talking with them surrounding surrounding me and as i said uh, they they like ele- select their leader as as all dogs uh, may do i i think but if they see that this leader is like weak or something else like they they put their leader and select other one they are very very um, hierarchic as i said and kind of Spartans <laughs> in that way. So when they are with their owners, they are very, very relaxed and all this, and they protect their owners. But when they are in in, in packs of dogs, they have this kind of structure, political structure, <laughs> literally, <laughs> that people don't know. But yeah, they are uh, like warriors, I think. And I study a little bit of history, and I know that they were like, driven with their uh, th- their people into war. Like they, they carried their Cholescuinclae dogs, the Aztecs, with, with them to go to war, and they followed them, and sometimes the Aztecs, I know that they eat their dogs, but it was only for the select <laughs> class of the of the priests, because the priest class in the Aztec world were like the only ones that they can do this, this, this stuff that was related to to their spiritual world, right? They they do sacrifices, and Aztecs uh, uh, commonly they eat other people sometimes, and that's where our dish that is called pozole came. Like we have a dish here in Mexico that is called pozole, and nowadays obviously it is not about humans, but in the in the ancient times, it was like flesh and bones of of people that there were sacrificed there, and they eat this. And it was the pozole. So the, I think that the Cholos Quincles is very similar to the Jews, for example, that they do the, the, this diaspora throughout the Jews do, the, do, the, do this diaspora throughout the world. But the Cholos Quincles did it in Mexico. So they r- were refugees in their own culture, right? They go to Colima mountains, as you said to Guerrero Mountains and they live there for 50 years I, I think or more, right? And they eat uh, whatever they see. Like they can eat everything. Chosprinkly dogs are very resistant dogs. I, I don't know if you know this, right? But Cholosprinkles can live like 15 years. They they in a savage uh, environment they can eat whatever they see. Like they can eat insects. Sometimes to survive, they, they eat uh, like uh, little animals, they are good hunters, and all this, and I think that they, they are a very strong breed that hasn't been crossbreed uh, artificially, right? Like other breeds. So this primitive aspect of the Choloscuincle is very important. What do you think about this primitive aspect, that the hasn't hasn't changed? Or has he been like uh, manipulated by the man throughout all these years that I think that they they have like 3,000 years, right? What do you think about this?
1: First of all, I think it's funny that you say that you have um, sholos because of kind of their connection to history because that's actually why I've only ever had Chihuahuas growing up. Um, My abuelo would would tell me about these um, Colima dog ceramics and he told me that they were Chihuahuas. My abuelo didn't have like as much access to uh, education and resources, so now we you know I've grown up, and I'm like, dang it, I should have had the sholos all along um you know, of course, Chihuahuas also have kind of this primitive history, but it's it's not as clearly cut as with the sholo um and yes, you're correct, so in terms of kind of this genetic um history and why sholos are sometimes called a primitive breed is because so Before the Europeans came, there were a variety of dog breeds that lived in the Americas. There were dogs that were in the, you know, in Alaska, dogs in the Carolinas, dogs in Mexico. There were dogs everywhere because it's thought that when humans crossed into the Americas and came here, they brought dogs with them, which is a really like to me is a touching thought. Like we were moving places, the dogs came with us. And so those dogs were here with us. That's when we have at La Chichi, this ancient breed, we have the original Sholo breed, and then the Europeans come. And it was thought for a while that the Europeans, when they came and they brought all of their dogs, that they basically bred out all of the pre Columbian um, dog breeds, that basically those dogs went extinct because they were overmixed with the, the um, European breeds, that we didn't have traces of them. Um, And recently there was a study that came out and it found out that there's, I believe they said there's four dog breeds in the U.S. that actually have a pretty significant amount of that pre-European contact dog DNA. And it was the Chihuahua, the Cholot, the Sholot Squeatly, the Peruvian Hairless, and I think it was a, a dog that's in Canada. Um, And so that's kind of why these dogs are called primitive or they they're kind of given this title because you're correct. They have had uh, pretty limited contact uh, with European breeding, European lineage. So if you have and, you know, Chihuahuas are are pretty common. So uh, at least now they are. I have newspaper articles from, you know, around 1910 where people were Chihuahuas were all the rage because they were seen as this little primitive dog. But now, now they're they're everywhere. I live in the U.S. I live in a town like you can see a Chihuahua like wherever you go. But the Sholayesquidlies they required a lot more um, kind of human interaction and care to bring the breed back to life. Um, they were thought to be extinct at one point, and um, there was an expedition. This is now. I was getting into like more modern history, which is you know we can change this. We don't want to want to go back to archaeology, but the the American Kennel Club has basically a history book about this. And they... There was an expedition, I can't remember the exact year, and they found some Xolo East Isquitlis and uh started a breeding program. And so, that's why they're such a rare, like, you know, high-demand dog, because they have that connection. Um, and, like, while we're on the same topic, this is also the same with the Peruvian Hairless. They kind of had a similar instance where they were thought to kind of have been extinct after the Spanish conquest, but no, there was a small pocket, small population of them, and they've kind of been rescued by the Peruvian government and Peruvian breeders there too.
0: And Yeah, uh, there was an expedition in the 50s, I think, and it was a, a woman that was the Lasalle's Countess, I think, she comes from, from Europe, And she started like researching along with other men that was a researcher uh, for Choles in the Sierras that are these mountains in Colima and Guerrero. And they were there in a savage state, as I said. And they were surviving like very well. And some people said that uh, they were like kind of uh, starting to be studied there and recollected and all this. And then the the person that really started this mainstream around the Cholescuincle it was obviously Frida Kahlo. Like she is the the ambassador of the of the breed in the recent history. And a lot of uh, artists start uh, talking about the Cholescuincle. And other thing that helps a lot, right, is that the Cholescuencle is a lot in a lot of art here in Mexico. Like you can see in the Mexican palace government palace, you can see a huge mural that is a, a wall painting. And in the history of Mexico you can see there the Spanish, the the Aztecs, all the the plaques that there were there were and the, the battles, but along them there was such a Squinkley drinking water or <laughs> or being hugged by an Aztec. So a, All this culture around the Choloscuincle, I think, is something unique that the Chihuahuas, for example, don't have, right? So this unique aspect of um, the Choloscuincle in the culture, how did you study uh, this aspect? Uh, Like, which is the most interesting aspect of the culture where the Choloscuincle is being involved that you think it has to be be talked about?
1: Well, this isn't my direct answer to the question, but I want to just like point out it's interesting that the Shalit's Queenly, the breed has uh, like kind of this high this high time in the limelight with Frida Kahlo in the fifties because that's also the same time that we see the Kalima dog ceramics. That's when a lot of them are collected by museums. It was kind of hand in hand where okay, Frida is painting this dog. That dog is really cool. Now we want the ancient depictions of the dog in our museum. Which leads to a lot of really interesting scenarios where these dogs were, these dog artifacts were so in demand that there might have actually been a, a market where there was forgeries made. So it was just like, it was, it was too much to handle. Everybody wanted either the actual Sholo dog or they wanted a, a piece of it in the museum or something. So that, that alone, I think, kind of adds together to how important these dogs were. Um, but to kind of answer your question, um, something that I don't think many people realize, um, and I can't take credit for this idea. Um, this is just kind of what I wrote. I studied more in my thesis is that the Sholó and its cousin in Peru, um, they're actually very, very closely to- related to the point that the Peruvian dog was probably transported there from Mexico. So, What we have happening, basically, is that we have the Colima people and we have these groups in um, Peru. Uh, So we have, you know, the Chimu, the Lambayeque, the Moche, and those groups in Peru, they lived on the coast. So they would often go north up the coast in search of a spondylus shell. This is like a little, it's a cream orange coral color shell that they used in their art. And so archaeologists and anthropologists and art historians were coming together now to realize that those groups from Peru probably went as far north up into Mexico. And when they went into West Mexico, they actually taught the West Mexicans how to use uh, work metal. That's why in West Mexico that's the first place we start to see metalworking. But there was actually another exchange that happened there. Um, There's some good evidence to suggest that when those Peruvians went back or if it wasn't Peruvians it was Ecuadorians you know South American groups they might have taken that hairless dog with them and what that basically means is that these groups they came and they lived among the West Mexicans for a while they saw these hairless dogs and they were like hey these are pretty cool and they actually took them on the trip back to um, Peru and to South America and the strongest piece of evidence for that is that we have uh, depictions of dogs in art in Peru and, and Ecuador um, long before this interaction happens. But a hairless dog does not appear in the art until after this trade network kind of, uh, you know, starts get, getting going. So there's, there's this idea um, that I talk about in kind of my, what, my work, but there have been other authors that kind of suggest it that this hairless dog was popular in ancient times too, um, to the point that it was, you know, transported by humans from Mexico to Peru. So, you know, we have this high demand in the 1950s and we have them in, you know, thousands of years ago as well. It's kind of this continuing love and interest of this very interesting dog breed.
0: I, I didn't know that, that <laughs> there was trade between Peru and Imagines maybe, right? But uh, what I knew is that the Magians, they were really not a warrior um, mm-hmm. um, culture, right? Or civilization. They were like uh, very into science and trade and all this kind of stuff that was uh, mainly pa- pacific, right? Like they were peaceful, a peaceful culture. And maybe that uh, enables the trade that you are talking about. Uh, it's very interesting what you have said. And I think that uh, the Aztecs uh, seen these dogs as sacred, right? And when they eat the dogs, they also do these rituals, like they were eating something sacred. So uh, Aztecs think or they believe that these Aztecs come from Cholotl. That's what I think, right? They they think that they come from Cholotl, and maybe the Cholosquincle name comes as well from this god. So, does the Cholos it was believed that it was like a gift from Cholotl or something like that?
1: Yeah. So, it's I think basically the the premise is so when we look at depictions of Cholotl the the god, uh, the deity, he's depicted probably as a hairless dog. So I'm thinking one example is there's a big stone monolith sculpture of his head in Mexico City, and he's got those wrinkles on his face, which you know some some art historians would say well it's wrinkles because it's an old dog but you could also read its wrinkles because it's it's a hairless dog so uh yeah i guess you, you could argue that it's um like a gift from Sholot, or that Sholot himself was a hairless dog and on this topic of eating dogs i think it's also interesting because yes the aztecs and other groups they did eat dogs but I'm not sure if we have evidence that they were actually sholots that were eaten. It might have been the other breed, the um, Tlauchichi, which was the more likely breed to be eaten. Because something that's interesting and kind of a problem in archaeology is that it's hard to tell the difference between dog breeds and bones. Right? When we're talking about archaeology, we're usually just looking at bones. And hairless dogs have... A unique feature where their teeth are a little bit like they're they're different from regular dogs it has to do with the genetic um the genetic problem they have was why they're hairless but we don't have much i know we have there's a couple cases where we found a skeleton with those teeth but the other problem and this is also true in peru is that dog remains are usually not as well studied as human remains um, I remember when I was in school, I had friends that were, you know, at archaeological dig sites and at, you know, they they were wor- they worked more with that than I did. And they would tell me, you know, animal remains are usually not the priority to be studied. So that's an area that we need more study with because um, in terms of like the archaeological, like hard evidence of sholos, it's very limited, which is why for me as an art historian, my work is important because we're looking at the depictions of them. But we do know that, you know, dogs were eaten. I think we found uh, dog bones that have, um, you know, cut marks on them. But it may be that it was a different breed. It was, um, of course, a descendant of the Chihuahua. That was probably the one that was eaten. Um, And may they might have been so special that maybe they weren't even, you know, touched or eaten. But like you said, yes, there were also ceremonies where when certain meats were consumed, they were done in a a very special um, certain way. So, yeah, that that could have been a possibility that if they were eating, you know, a hairless dog or or such a such because something to remember, I think, is that these dogs were probably rare in ancient times, too. They were not everyone had one of these dogs. So if you were going to end their life unnaturally, I would think that there would be something they would do to kind of celebrate that
0: yeah what you were talking about it, it is also very related to the duality of the of the breed. so the cholosquinkle has two varieties that is the coated cholo and the hairless cholo. as well as Quetzalcoatl was the uh, the the brother of uh, Cholotl, and Quetzalcoatl was believed to be the the beautiful brother and Cholotl was the deformed brother and Quetzalcoatl, as you know, was what like the opposite of Cholotl. So here in the breed, in the Cholo, something very curious to know about is that they have these uh, two varieties, right? This duality of the breed. And the genetic element that gives the Cholo squinkle the hairless aspect is is a gen that is called the Fox L3 gen. So this uh, genetic aspect is the, the one that gives the this uh, hairless aspect to the Cholo. And it can be... Um, um say like inherit from the cholos uh, throughout the all the generations the, the, the following generations, the coming generations because it is a so a strong gen element, right? Like the Fox L3 is something that the breeders are are like protecting from this breed. That's what, that is the reason that in the uh, Mexican Kennel Club, for example, or the AKC club or wherever, they, they, they put as a rule that you cannot uh, breed two coated shell squinkles, for example, because it is uh, very important to, to preserve the hairless uh, variety of the breed. And the hairless variety of the breed is the one that it is being like, uh, introduced into all these elements of the culture, right? And people do not know about the other, uh, the other variety, that it, it, it is also very common. Like um, uh, we have a a coated cholo that uh, go to to um, to how to say concursar like uh, he went to to the Mexican Kennel Club to win a prize and he wins like uh, it is uh, it is pretty recent this recognition that he has been gifted to the cholos quickly. but uh, in the past not, nobody knew about this variety of cholos right of the coated variety. But it is also related strongly to this uh, spiritual aspect of the breath, of this duality. That's why I am saying that it is very rare all these relationships that the Cholos Quinkley has with Cholotl and all this, right? Like uh, you can see them.
1: Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought up the Fox um, L3. Because uh, that, that has to do with um, ectodermal dysplasia, I think is the word I was looking for. But what's really, like, is that that's something that genetic, um, like, whatever, the, the quirk, it, it was only found pretty recently. So, you know, when we're thinking in ancient times, um, and I'm glad you brought up that, yes, breeding, uh, there, there's a difference. If you breed um, hairless to hairless versus, you know, coat to coat you get a different um, like makeup of the litter. So like, you know, think about how nowadays we know this again, because of Google, because of breeders, we have scientists, but in ancient times that had to have been kind of esoteric knowledge, right? That you had to pass down from person to person. Um, So yeah, that adds into why these dogs are so important. It's not just, you couldn't just put, you know, two of these dogs together and hope for the best. You had to put a lot of maintenance and care into taking care of them. Um, and so, yeah, that that I think that really feeds into why they're seen as so spiritually important. And it's almost as if the dog breed is aware of its history. You know, um, they're aware of how much care that we as humans have put into keeping them alive and, you know, keeping that hairless uh, breed alive. Um, and, and it sounds like that's how they behave, right? They take very good care of their owners, um, you know, as you said, because I've always wanted to, to see a hairless dog, But, of course, again, I'm, I'm, I love Chihuahuas, but that's, that's the, uh, the lesser of the ancient Mexican breeds that I'm kind of uh, stuck with.
0: <laughs> yes, and some people say that they have, like, uh, 10,000 years. Like, others said they have, like, 3,000 years. And they don't, like, uh, join together into uh, one version of how much time the, the breed has, right? And what do you think about you study archaeology and all this? How many years does the breed has?
1: Oh, see, now that's something I'd have to go into the literature to like give you an exact number, but I I would just say like the safe the safe thing to say is that if we have the earliest depictions of Colima, I think the latest date is like 100 BC or, or BCE. That's at least two thousand years, so. That, that's the safe estimate. But again, we have to remember that dogs have been with humans in the Americas since the humans came into Americas. So 2,000 years is just when we have the first probably recorded artistic depiction of the dogs. So you could easily add on, I think, hundreds or maybe a, a few thousand years onto that. Um, because we also have to remember that there's actually three hairless dog breeds that have that um have the fox one three it's the peruvian the Sholo, and then there's the chinese crested uh dog and i think that dog actually also has a very long history so to not give you i'm afraid of giving you a number because i don't want like actual scientists that have the literature in front of them tell me i'm wrong i'm just gonna say at least two thousand years
0: Okay, safe, but uh, did they come from this rain is, uh, the Bering the uh, Bering bridge that was like an ice bridge, like uh, right? Like they were crossing from Asia, Indo Asia, to America with the Aztecs from the Bering bridge?
1: Yes, the Bering yes, land bridge.
0: Okay, okay. And these Aztecs uh, were the ones that they think that Aztlan was in Mexico and all this. So the cholos were with them, (laughs) like, doing this peregrinage or peregrinaje in Spanish, right? Like, this is the path that they took from from the north of the continent to Mexico. Uh, Am am I right? Yeah, so it's important to
1: remember the Aztecs are kind of... um, they're like we think of them as ancient but they were probably the last, you know, group, the last big indigenous group before the Spanish came. So they're probably 1300 to 1500. I'm just going off the top of my head. But yes, there's an Aztec um legend that they came from Atlan, which was I believe in like north of where modern Mexico City is. And so, yeah, that it, um I'm not sure if we have like any depictions of them with dogs, but I would believe that where, again, as I have said before, wherever humans went, the dogs were with them. Um, And so those first groups that came into Mexico, they probably had the dogs with them. They, they probably weren't, you know, the Aztecs because the Aztecs are much, much later. Um, But again, it just, it speaks to the, the how long we've had these dogs and how important they are.
0: Yeah. So to finish this interview with you, I am very glad that you come to to meet us here in the Cholo Ramirez show, um, what are your thoughts about the future of the breed? Because, for example, we as breeders, we are taking care of this genetic aspect of the breed, and also something uh, that not not everybody knows is that the coated Cholo gives is um, like a strong a strongness to the breed, because if you only breed like only hairless dogs, uh, they will become kind of weak. In the future, like uh, you create weakness into the breed, so it is very important to have some coated cholos in the lineage of the of the breed. What are your your thoughts about the future of the breed? Do you think it will be more known in the world? Do you think that it in today's world it is already like a kind of of uh, reach its um, its potential into how much they are being known in the world because we have this uh, Coco movie of of Disney like they were kind of Frida Kahlo in terms of uh, of reach to people right this Disney movie helped the Cholo get known in the world also Frida Kahlo helped them also all the art uh, in Mexico but what do you think to, in the future what can help the breed like uh, and go everywhere in the world, like, like everyone have one Cholo. Like it happens with Chihuahua's dogs, for example, that they are more mainstream because they were in movies like Legally Blonde and all this, or maybe Paris Hilton. I don't know.
1: <laughs> no, it's an excellent question. And I think kind of a way that the Cholo um, can become more popular. And I, I believe that there is a potential um, is just kind of connecting it to this wider history of the hairless dog. So, you know, like I said, this is kind of a, a new um, discovery that the Peruvian hairless and the Xolo are, are th- their cousins. I mean, they, they came probably from the same ancient family at one point. And so, and I know when I was doing my research that there's actually like a hairless dog in Ecuador. I think there's a hairless dog in South America. So I would think it would be wonderful if like the, you know, the Sholo is Xolo, which is kind of like the leader of the hairless dog family, if we gave attention to all these other families because all these other hairless dogs, because when you look at them together, it's, it's just this really beautiful interconnected story of human interactions where we're interacting with different groups, but also how we use dogs as our mediators. Um, and I know that like when I've done research about the Peruvian hairless dog is, it's only recently that they've been starting to get kind of attention. They have their own day. Um, it, like you said, it, it's breeding these dogs. It's important that you keep the coded variety around. There's a specific way that we keep the breed healthy, which they're now trying to do in Peru. So I guess to answer this question, if, if we link up all of our hairless dog breeds together, we really say, you know, this is a family. This is what makes them unique. They all have their own individual ancient stories, but, There's no other kind of dog breeds in the world that are connected like this. I think that's one way we can make them, you know, extremely relevant. I would love to see a Sholo in every house. I think everyone would be happier if we had that, right? We'd have a a beautiful, warm, comforting dog. Um, Again, my Chihuahuas are barking downstairs. They're probably upset at me that I'm I'm saying bad things about them. But, um, yeah, I I would love that. Chihuahuas, Sholos in every house. Let's do it.
0: Yeah, for now, I think that there are a lot of Cholos, for example, in Spain, in Russia. Maybe they have more Cholos there than in Mexico, for example, because in Mexico we have like 3,000 registered Cholos, and in Spain I think that they have like 11, Russia a little bit more. And the U.S., uh, there are a lot of Chicanos, Mexican people, that there are in the U.S. for generations, right? And they like a lot of the cholos. Like they identify very much with the cholo squinkly. And there are like the global connections that the cholos have. Uh, they are very appreciated in Europe, in Russia, and in Spain. And in Mexico, I think that every Mexican should have a cholo squinkly. Because how can you be a Mexican if you don't have a cholo? because Aztecs literally were with the cholos in their everyday lives so the spanish people were the ones that take out this culture of mexicans having their cholos behind them right because they like persecuted the cholos uh, literally they persecuted the cholo they put them like adject- adjectives as uh, satanic and related to these serpent gods that they have all these pyramids sacrifices, right? And the Aztec culture is like kind of um, in very bad uh, in terms of uh, perception, because a lot of people in the U.S. only think that the Aztecs were like really a warrior class and all this, but they are were very spiritual behind the, the, the warrior aspect, right? And in today's Mexico, we are kind of warriors too. Like all these... Uh, Common language for, like chinga tu madre and all this is it's like a brave culture. So we we take care of our mothers, we take care of our family, and we should take care of our cholos our dogs, and also the chihuahua, of course, right? Is also is also a Mexican dog. But yeah, I, this is the cultural aspect of the cholo, the history behind. It. So thank you very much, Jasmine um i didn't know that you were a master and, and you have a, this all these studies around the cholo i only knew that your account your true account was right like really good <laughs> so that's why i i asked you to to join us today thank you so
1: thank much, you for, so having much for having I mean, me the the other thing that i think is, is funny i don't i don't know if i've mentioned this, but i'm also my family's from mexico so a lot of what you say like like kind of reverberates with me like what you said how can you be Mexican you don't have a cholo that's that's why wasn't my abuelo told me he says we cannot be Mexican if we don't have a chihuahua so maybe the answer is we gotta we maybe we gotta take a pause on giving the chihuahua all the attention and say hey have y'all heard of its cousin in Mexico um who is also equally Mexican and actually probably more was more revered by our ancient you know our, our our ancestors so no I'm so glad that you guys could have me thank you so much
0: well, this was the Cholos Ramirez Show, and thank you very much, everyone who has joined. We will archive this uh, podcast on our website, cholosramirez.com uh, podcast. So thank you very much, and bye-bye.